Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ken Caton, who is a professor of public health and medicine at Tufts School of Medicine and the director of the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. He's also an advisory professor at Shanghai Medical College at Fudan University in Shanghai and a consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense on bioterror countermeasures. Ken's research focuses on the economic, scientific, regulatory, and political factors that affect pharmaceutical development. Welcome, Ken. Pleasure to be with you, Gil. So you have been um, looking at uh, pharmaceutical R&D, uh, drug development costs, timelines, attrition rates, uh, for a long time. Um, I, haven't, I haven't really looked at the latest numbers in the, in the late 90s uh, at Pfizer. Uh, what I remember is that from idea to market, uh, it was about 15 years uh, for, for an idea to, to get to market successfully. Five of those in discovery, 10 of those in development. And those 10 years uh, split into various phases, obviously preclinical, maybe two to three years, phase one, approximately one year, phase two A and two B combined, maybe two years. Phase three used to be three years. I think it has uh, sped up a little bit lately. And then you have that NDA phase of, uh, of year or two. So totally 10 years in development. And if memory serves me right, um, uh, the, the cost of that, that total development process for a product to come to market uh, was about $1.1 billion. That, that is late 90s, early 2000s. Um, have things changed since then? So timelines have remained about the same. We still see an overall timeline of about 15 years to go from concept to the marketplace. So that much difference there. The overall cost based on our most recent figure that was done in and published in 2016 uh, was $2.6 billion to bring a new drug to market. And that's a fully capitalized cost. Yeah. And it includes the cost of failures. 
And that happens to be a 145% increase over our previous figure, which was in the early 2000s, for the early 2000s. Yeah. And the major reason for that increase is that we saw a dramatic change in success rates. So when we did our previous study back in the early 2000s, which included drugs that were in development in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the overall success rate was about, this is clinical success rate, was about 22%. In other words, 22% of those candidates that started clinical testing would eventually reach the marketplace. By the time we did our next study, which had drugs that were in development in the late uh, first decade of the 2000s through the early part of this past, this decade, uh, the success rate had dropped to 11.8%. In other words, it was about half the overall success rate as it was in the previous study. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of reasons for that, but the bottom line in terms of cost is that overall success rate has a direct impact on costs and the increase in failure was dramatically increasing the overall cost of development. So in constant dollars, we saw a 145% increase in costs. Okay. The interesting thing about timelines, I'll get back to cost in a minute, but the interesting thing about timelines is that we're, we're just about to publish a, a study that shows that overall review time has actually decreased, especially for those drugs uh, that have benefited from some of the facilitated regulatory pathways, as they're referred to at the FDA. Those include the breakthrough therapies designation and accelerated approval and, and uh, some of the others. But overall development times, clinical development times, have actually increased at a greater rate. So the overall time has actually gone up slightly in mm-hmm. clinical development to approval. So that's what we're not seeing any benefit there. I mean, that's not the case with those drugs that have benefited from the much faster development phases, the, the really breakthrough drugs. But for drugs in general, we've seen either keeping steady or a actual slight increase in the overall time. Getting right. back to costs, um, the, the, the issue about the success rate, the, really the question is, so why did the success rate get so much worse? Uh, dropping by about a half. And our assessment of that is a lot of that has to do with the types of drugs that were being developed in the 1990s versus the 2000s. What we saw in the 1990s, and the industry took quite a bit of criticism for this, I think, is that they were developing drugs that were viewed as incremental innovation or perhaps more disparagingly, Me Too drugs, we weren't seeing a lot of highly innovative new drugs reaching the market. And that really changed in the early 2000s when we really saw the, the, the biotech revolution uh, um, occur. And a lot of companies were starting to move their development programs to looking at precision medicines and targeted therapies that were taking advantage of our new understanding of the genetic mechanisms of a lot of drug, a lot of diseases that we hadn't known before. And despite all of the enthusiasm and the, the fact that we were getting a lot of new breakthrough drugs, that comes at a cost and the cost was a higher failure rate. And right. in fact, the failure rate that we see, the 11.8% that we were seeing at that point, yeah. is probably much is probably higher than it really was because some of the failures are in small companies with one or two products in their portfolio and when they fail they de- tend to disappear 
And so right. we're not capturing those because there's no company to get the information from. So the, probably the overall success rate was even lower. But the bottom line is the likelihood of success is still very low. And that's that's a driver of a lot of the changes that we're seeing right now in the industry. Yeah, uh, it brings some memories back. And so uh, uh, at Pfizer in the 80s, we had success rates, uh, development success rates in the range of, I believe, 20, 20s. And then uh, there was a shift in strategy uh, going into, as you say, uh, not incremental, but first in class, best in class type products. And we saw attrition rates dramatically increase uh, to in the range of 10 to 12 percent. Right. Uh, which I think you are seeing now um, in in the in the total market, right in the two right, thousands. Right. Yeah. yeah, and so you know uh, this is something that uh, perhaps you know policymakers um, I guess have some understanding of that. Public may not have a very good understanding of this. Perhaps uh, attrition rates makes a huge uh, difference, huge impact on the total cost of bringing a product to market. So 10% essentially means that, you know, one, only one in 10 is actually going to make it to market. So all the development costs associated with nine out of those 10 uh, is not going to get any returns for the company, right? That's correct. So, so the, the issue that there is the, from a portfolio management perspective, and, and you touched on this as well, for a large pharmaceutical company uh, having a large portfolio, um, you know, that risk can be diversified away. But if it's a biotechnology company with one or two products, they still have the same attrition rates, which would imply that, you know, if the, if the product is going to make it, they're going to make a, a ton of money, but the product is not going to make it, they're going to just die because there, there isn't any risk diversification in one product, two product companies. Do you think that scenario here and obviously how those companies are capitalized makes a big difference. So, you know, presumably the capital provider could diversify that risk away. But what is the situation now? Do you think the high attrition rate is slowing down uh, innovation, uh, especially, you know, that the small biotechnology companies coming to fore? Well, I think what it is, what, what it really has created is a, a diversification of risk. Yeah. So far, large pharma companies, I think, in the past are more willing to take on the entire drug development process. It wasn't that long ago that I remember some of the large multinationals took great pride in saying we can take a compound from the lab bench all the way to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you'd find any large company that would proudly say that they do that. The, the pride comes in their ability to to um, get the resources from other institutions and organizations such as academics and, and small biotech and startups, because they're the ones that often uh, where you see a lot of the new innovation coming right out of academic centers based on NIH research and, and, other, and other opportunities. So it's become much more of a collaborative, integrated, um, mechanism for bringing new drugs to market. And I think actually this is a change that has really benefited all sectors. Yeah. Um, you know, academic institutions, um, even though I work closely with pharmaceutical companies and interact with companies all the time, I'm still in an academic institution. And I see the state of the 
basic research enterprise now as struggling. And they're struggling because the NIH budget has remained relatively stable and in constant dollars has decreased over the last few years. Mm. And there's been a de-emphasis on basic research. It's really been focused on translational research. And that's all well and good if you assume that we don't have any need for basic research anymore because we have all the basic research we need. The right. bottom line is translational research is focused on the barriers to transition from basic to applied research. And that helps industry because that's what industry is interested in. And a lot of the academic institutions have now identified that as an area for a focus. But I think there's a, a, a real need for more a reinvestment and a recalibration of NIH budget in basic research. Because some of the most vexing therapeutic areas now, the ones where there's significant therapeutic and medical needs, such as cardiovascular disease, and in particular, something like uh, Alzheimer's and the other diseases, neurological diseases of aging, yeah. uh, I think are struggling because of lack of new basic understanding of disease mechanisms. And that's not going to happen unless there is a refocus on basic research. Large pharma companies don't really have an incentive to get into that area. It's too far removed from, from product development, and it's hard to, to really uh, look at return on investment when you're doing early discovery and understanding disease mechanisms. So that's really the domain of the NIH and academic institutions, and yet we're really moving away from that. But putting that aside, I still think that the overall environment, the landscape for innovation is shifting. It's no longer big pharma moving products through to the market and all the products are big pharma products. It's now a much more of a collaborative environment where you have academic institutions, um, uh, small pharma spin outs, and then uh, biotechs that are sharing their knowledge with big pharma companies. And they're the ones that are doing the the clinical research and the and the um, the regulatory aspects to bring those drugs successfully to the marketplace. Yeah, so that's so two important points there, um, Ken. So one is the fragmentation um, of the value chain in the in the pharma R and D process, which is as you say, um, and and this trend has been going on for probably twenty years or more, which is uh, discovery preclinical things are done by smaller companies, more innovative, more nimble, uh, and, uh, and let's say more creative companies. And when the proof of concept, uh, proof of principle is established, a pharma company can take it and, um, and, and essentially manufacture the drug uh, through the R&D process, so to speak. And so there's a specialization that is happening there, which might be good. Uh, uh, but it also, I guess, as you say, the other part of this puzzle is um, the lack of basic research, um, which forces the industry to continue to do sort of incremental uh, innovations, incremental benefits delivered to society. And they cannot really engage in basic research because it's just too far away, as you say, from market. So. Even, even the smaller discovery type companies are funded by uh, venture capital and other type of private funding. I would imagine they have the same issue, right? It, it, their horizon is shorter. They just want to license 
a proof of concept to a pharmaceutical company. So it's a different manufacturing process, but their incentive to engage in basic research is probably as low as, as a pharmaceutical company. Absolutely. Uh, and no venture capital invests in a small company with the idea of let's develop something that's 15 years away from reaching the marketplace. The idea is to create value as quickly as possible and then have an exit strategy for capitalizing on that value. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing in the small and mid-sized pharma companies. And you know, on the other hand, <clears throat> we're seeing a lot more of interest within venture capital for those uh, academic labs and small companies that are capitalizing in our increased understanding of, say, genetic diseases or diseases uh, or oncology, where we do have a wealth of information yeah. <clears throat> about new targets and the basic pathophysiology of cancer that has opened up all sorts of new doors and opportunities for exploration. So you know, the whole uh, immuno-oncology space and some of the other uh, approaches to uh, dealing with, with cancer are attracting a lot of investment because there is new opportunity there based on the basic research and also great potential for return on investment because reimbursers are tend to be look at cancer drugs favorably and genetic drugs as well as favorably. In other words, they're willing to reimburse for the cost of the drugs. And I think we're going to have a reckoning in that area at some point. But in the meantime, that attracts a lot of investment. But we're not seeing a lot of investment in those areas where you don't see a lot of new innovation, exciting innovation. So their companies are dropping out of the, the central nervous system drug development space because companies tend to be developing Alzheimer's drugs that are based on a, on a model, the beta amyloid plaque model, uh, wh where we already know that if you can reduce the plaques, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to abate the progression of the disease. And yep. yet companies continue to stay in that area because of lack of anything better to study. So I, you know, I think I think that investors look at that, VCs look at that, and they say, well, why would we get into that area? That doesn't make sense. Even though the company that breaks the code on on Alzheimer's disease is really going to have a nice payday, uh, the bottom line is there's no indication that anybody is going to break that code because we just don't have enough new knowledge about the disease to exploit. Yeah, <laughs> Alzheimer's is quite interesting. And, you know, there is some research that shows that reducing amyloid uh, beta plaque is actually has a negative effect uh, if that is that is uh, administered uh, beyond certain age uh, right. of the individual. And, and because it's out there as a hypothesis and because it's maybe easier to test and maybe easier to get approved, I don't know. Uh, you continue to see investments into an area that is, from a basic research perspective, uh, doesn't seem to work. So this this brings us to sort of a policy level questions, right? So what is the solution here? So if you have a private, you know, the the markets are structured, both small companies and pharmaceutical companies, in such a way that their incentives and economics don't allow them to do basic research. Uh, the only option left then is public funding of uh, basic research, right? Is there, is there other creative ways we can think about it, public-private partnerships and other ways? Well, I, 
in my view, there are three approaches to try to stimulate and encourage in innovation in these areas where there's significant therapeutic need. There's a reinvestment in basic research, and that's something, as you just said, has to occur at a government level. It has to be the NIH saying, uh, we're going to uh, recalibrate our investments in academic research and going, going to put more money into basic research. I might add there that we've got a problem now in that a lot of the basic researchers within academia have already left. They're, they're not getting funded. Mm. They've either moved into industry or they've retired because they've been around for a long time. And the result is even if the NIH recalibrated right now today and said, well, we're going to put a lot more money in basic research, there aren't a lot of basic researchers in academia to do it. Mm. So that's a problem. But Putting that aside for the time being, I think in a reinvestment in basic research would be one. The second is the creation of these collaborative arrangements that we've seen uh, over the last few years. A good example is the Accelerating Medicines Partnership in the United States. It was first introduced in 2014. It just focuses on four therapeutic areas. It includes 12 pharma companies. 12 different, uh, I think 13 different organizations and nonprofits, as well as the NIH and the FDA, all involved in, among other diseases, uh, Alzheimer's disease, in trying to get a better handle in a pre-competitive space uh, about different uh, mechanisms that could be exploited to develop new drugs. So I think the transition to these more collaborative approaches in a pre-competitive space I think will help investment in that area. Yeah. And then finally, I think what's really needed also is just more regulatory tools. A lot of these are already at the, at the government's disposal <clears throat> to use, but I think more in the way of push-pull mechanisms, the, the push mechanisms, uh, uh, the ability to lower barriers to get these products on the market by using different tools that the FDA already has at its disposal, as well as, well as pull mechanisms that provide better market uh, benefits for these companies that get the product to the market. And that could be in the form of extended patent life or uh, reduced competition in some way or another, uh, uh, priority vouchers. Lots of other approaches have been used over the years. But I think you know, it needs to be a combination of a reinvestment in basic research, a collaborative approach to development, and government push-pull mechanisms to encourage co companies to develop these products and provide provide rewards for those that that succeed. Yeah, on the on the the first item that you mentioned, Ken. Uh, so that also implies that educational institutions need to step up a little bit as well, right? So if we, if we don't have researchers. Uh, to do basic research, you know, you have a foundational problem. So, you know, are, are there attempts by education institutions to, to attempt to correct that? Well, um, as I said before, there's an in interesting symbiotic relationship that's developed now between academic institutions and, and industry. And that's yeah. something that the NIH has fostered back all the way back to the NIH roadmap that Elias Zerhone um, uh, instituted back in early 2000. Uh, the idea was that academic institutions should, should focus on translational research because the goal was to allow more of this research to result in newer and better drugs reaching the marketplace. Mm -hmm. At the same time, industry was looking to de-risk the process and reduce its overall investment 
in early stage research and academic now became uh, it became critical for academic institutions to partner with industry for a variety of reasons. The, uh, their own survival was at stake because they were running, they were not getting enough from the NIH. And so it, academic institutions, for the most part, transitioned to a more translational research environment. And I, I'm from, I can see that in my own institution, but in every other institution that I speak to, they are almost 100% uh, translational research because they're looking for partnerships with industry. They're desperately in need of that. At the same time, industry is definitely looking for relationships with academic institutions to encourage and stimulate this type of translational research. So from a short-term perspective, this is extremely positive. From yes. a long-term perspective, I don't know if it's positive because at some point, we're going to say, well, we've sort of exhausted this approach to treating a disease. We need new approaches, and they don't exist because nobody's invested in understanding the disease better. Right. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, in some sense, uh, scary. You know, we have an aging population with a <clears throat> uh, lot of comorbid conditions, and they're going to demand um, more and more uh, therapies, and they're going to live longer. So we have, you know, sort of a ticking time bomb here. Right, right. But I, I want to touch on another, another aspect and want to get your perspective on this. So, you know, the pharma model has always been um, look for products that can be mass marketed uh, with a single dose. You know, we kind of played around this idea of personalized medicine for a long time. Nothing really happened there. Um, do you think, and, and, and related to this also, I want to get your view on this, uh, we are still using statistical techniques uh, that were developed for manufacturing, you know, nuts, bolts, manufacturing, uh, and we're still using p-values and, you know, <laughs> all that stuff uh, to, to approve and, uh, and uh, you know, understand that if the drug is going to work, uh, in a regime where you have 60% placebo effect. So you have essentially a, a situation that is driven by uncertainty um, and decisions are made by age-old statistical tools and pharma companies are looking for mass-marketed drugs. Uh, I think this is a situation just, you know, uh, set up for long-term failure. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it's uh, as well as the fact that the whole business model within the industry has changed. That's clear. Yeah. 15 years ago or 20 years ago, everything was was focused on these large population drugs with the idea being a, a high volume, low margin market was much better than anything else. So that you saw companies over focused on statins for cholesterol and SSRIs and similar compounds for depression and and NSAIDs, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for pain, because the idea was why would you develop a drug that treats only a few people? You wanna develop drugs that treat as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And these drugs could be mass produced and, and kept at a relatively low price because you're using it in so many people. And that, that really has shifted dramatically. In the last 15 years, every company is basically focused on precision medicines, targeted therapies, um, um, and all of those, and orphan drugs and specialty pharma. 
yeah. with the idea that this newer approach to drug development pays dividends in a variety of ways. And so you now it's uh, it's taking advantage of the new scientific knowledge we have that enables this sort of precision medicine approach, but it also offers advantages in terms of the overall competitive landscape in that most payers are paying for these, these precision medicines and your overall competition is lower because you don't get as many entrants into a, a particular area. Mm -hmm. I think all of this is changing the dynamic within the industry, as you're describing, in terms of the mass-produced products, as well as the evaluation tools that are being used, the statistical methodologies that are being used to determine the usefulness of these drugs. We're also seeing, of course, more pressure because of the payment pressure in the United States and, and actually around the world to be able to evaluate and demonstrate value, therapeutic value and economic value upfront, not wait until the product reaches the marketplace. Yeah. Payers for a long time were willing to cover the cost of a precision medicine that costs $300,000 a year for a few extra months of, of life for a cancer patient because the overall budget impact wasn't that great. There weren't that many drugs available that were had, that had those kind of price tags. I think in the next few years, we're gonna see a steady flow of these types of drugs reaching the marketplace. And even though each of them treats a small number of people, the health plans are really gonna be challenged because now there are so many of those drugs with these very high price tags that the budget impact is gonna be that much greater, which is gonna put much more pressure on the companies to be able to demonstrate at the get-go that their drug represents value relative to the other products that are on the marketplace. And, and the movement towards uh, more of this health technology assessment approach, for example, with, the, with ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review in the Boston area, as well as other organizations that are using these types of approaches to determine what's a fair price, again, is gonna put more and more pressure on these companies to have all of this information upfront, not yeah. wait until they reach the marketplace. And as a result, I think this is, is catalyzing a change in the way the whole drug development process is occurring. There's increased pressure on, there's going to be increased pressure on companies to be able to demonstrate value yeah. Um, uh, even before they reach the marketplace, which I think is going to put additional challenges into the drug development process as they try to incorporate some of these value-based studies into right. the development program. And that's going to change the entire approach from a statistical perspective as well as a development perspective. Yeah, and the issue has always been um, outcomes measuring outcomes and it has become more complex now so you know uh, everybody has a lot of different comorbid conditions and we could treat condition by condition in a segmented fashion at, at a much higher level actually uh, behavioral health and physical health are treated completely differently even though there's a lot of data that shows that behavioral health has a lot of correlation with physical health and so we are also missing in this puzzle the outcome for the human being, um, you know, the, the pharmaceutical process, uh, product X curing Y uh, with some statistical measure is, is outcome is interesting, but ultimately the outcome is what happened to the human being, which is not something 
at least from my perspective, companies are really focused on yet? Well, they haven't been focused on it yet, and they hadn't been in the past, certainly. And uh, But on the other hand, the 21st Century Cures Act that was passed just uh, in 2016, just at the end of the previous administration, it, um, had a segment that that was that encouraged the FDA to create guidelines for the use of real world data and real world evidence. Yeah. And I think that was the beginning of trying to get the um, to incorporate some of that information, just as you said, into the development plan so that we know more, not just about how the drug works, but on whom it's going to work and what are the limitations based on drugs on individuals' comorbidities. We couldn't capture that in the past because clinical trials that are done in a, in a controlled setting tend to result in drugs that work in people with no comorbidities and yeah. are not taking any other drugs, which is not anything like what we see when the drug reaches the market typically. Mm-hmm. So the whole concept of real world evidence was a way to try to capture this information in the early stages of development. And we didn't really see any progress in that area. Companies gave it lip service, I think. They, they, they said that this is important. They were interested, but they were still waiting for guidance from the FDA. And we've begun to see that, I think, in the most recent, in the last year or so. We've seen much more movement at the FDA and also the EMA in Europe to try to uh, explain what, what they're looking for when it comes to and how to utilize real world data in a drug application. So we may be seeing changes in that area. I'm not sure how that will be incorporated. I'm not sure how companies at this point uh, are going to interpret that, but I don't think there's any question that considering all the things that you mentioned, that the extended lifespan and that people have more diseases, they're not they're not staying healthy longer, they're staying sicker longer. Mm. So the, the bottom line is you need to be able to incorporate that, that type of information into a drug development program. And I think that's going to be incumbent on companies to try to figure out the best way to do that with the help of regulatory agencies. Right, yeah. And I want to uh, shift gears and touch on COVID-19 uh, as well. So, um, you know, there, there are a lot of lot of different efforts. I think a lot of papers being published in this area, in a massive amounts of papers published in this area, I should say. Uh, and some of the drugs have been repurposed um, as a as a therapy. Uh, data still seems uh, sort of unclear there. A uh, lot of effort into vaccines. Um, what is enveloping all of this activity appears to be sort of misinformation. Um, uh, you know, from uh, from policymakers, even I would say from uh, manufacturers uh, who, you know, uh, pick and choose good data to some extent. You run a phase one study and you find, you know, uh, seven, eight people in there uh, developing antibodies and you say that is a great sign, which could be, uh, but it is really selective use of data uh, and it has potential negative effects on people's expectations of when a vaccine is going to show up. Do you have a view on that? You know, it's remarkable that, first of all, we're talking about a time period of four months. I mean, it's absolutely incredible to me what we've seen in the past four months. Uh, You know, this is something that we could normally have a debate on occurring over three or four years. And yet we're talking about four months. Initially, interestingly, I think, 
there was it was easy to be impressed with how many different companies and organizations and academic institutions and nonprofit labs were working on all of these different approaches and they were sharing information and there was a lot of collaboration and you know, we saw the sequencing of the COVID um, genome in China, and within two weeks, there were efforts in different, different regions of the world to edit genes to be able to make potential vaccines and other treatments. All of this was very exciting. And now what we have is, I would call it a free-for-all. Everybody is not just developing um, treatments and vaccines, but they're sharing the information in a non-peer-reviewed way with limited um, ability for others to assess the the quality and the validity of the results. Mm. And so this is now an impediment to development because we're following we're following uh, uh, trails that may not be leading anywhere. And I think this is this is a real problem. We need to sort of get back to uh, a more traditional approach to developing treatments and vaccines whereby, we do a study, we vet that study, we get it reviewed by people who understand the science, and then that study is shared in the public domain so that people can know that what they're looking at is something that represents quality research. Until we get back to that, I'm afraid that we're gonna have a lot of these fits and starts where people are following um, um, uh, loose ends yeah. and not getting anywhere in the drug development process. So. I agree with you. I mean, we, we we really entered a stage where there's a lot of exciting research going on in the world. Now it's just getting very difficult to find it and to know where it is when we see it mm. or if, if we're seeing it. Because there's just too much data, <laughs> too much data. There's just there. too yeah. much out there. Yeah. And everybody, the rush to share information right. has created this environment where there's no vetting of anything. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, uh, I wondered if there is a different way of thinking about this. So in a shock like this, and this goes back to what you were talking about in terms of the bifurcation of the pharma R&D value chain in terms of small companies doing discovery, pharmaceutical companies doing clinical trials, uh, and, and they're really good at what they do in those aspects and put them together uh, uh, to be more useful. Uh, there could be a similar situation here at the at the macro level that uh, maybe innovation research is done by you know certain organizations, and when they reach a stage, they bring that uh, to those who would do the verification, and then there is the next stage of really scaling up manufacturing, testing at uh, at large numbers. So I wondered in a shock like this uh, where you know, we could create something uh, that is that is sort of what's happening in the normal regime with biotechnology companies and pharmaceutical companies doing separate things and the government doing separate things. All those three entities could be contributing, but there has to be some coordinated effort, right? It cannot be free for all. Yes, and I think um, uh, a movement in that direction was through CEPI, the um, Coalition for Epidemic, Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which received a lot of money from the Gates Foundation, and that was overseeing a lot of the research that was going on. I think when we're dealing with something that's so urgent, like a pandemic such as this, 
an overseeing body that's comprised of experts that understand the science and can help with the interpretation of results is critical. Yeah. It may not, that certainly doesn't make sense for every disease state or diseases that we've been studying normally over the past few decades. But in a case like this, where there's a, where there's a transformation in research labs around the world to focusing on COVID, and the amount of information that's coming out is so enormous to have an organizing body to say this is appropriate to follow up on this makes sense this is poor this is poorly done this is not controlled would be very helpful for all of those involved if it's not been done by a third party organization like CEPI, if it could be done by uh, the government i mean this is a role that i think ordinarily the cdc or some organizing body in the United States could 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 put together or on a global front so that there's no sense of uh, nationalistic uh, approach to any of this, that somebody is a, a group of experts are reviewing all of these results with the goal of determining where we should go next. What, what's a good lead to follow and how should we follow up on this? Um, that just doesn't exist now. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. And it's a global problem, right? Unless we get the 70, 75% of the global population uh, immune to it, uh, it doesn't really matter. You cannot, no country can be an island. I mean, as we have seen, it, it, does, it, does, it does take only a, only a flight or a couple of flights from one place exactly. to another uh, exactly. for it to spread again. So, so I want to conclude with your views, uh, Ken, on how do you see pharma R&D uh, generally, you know, at the, at the societal level, more macro level, how do you see it's functioning five years, 10 years into the future? How will it be funded? How it will be organized? What, what type of entities are likely to succeed? And from a policy perspective, what do you see uh, to be the, the dominant way to think about it? I think, I think, um, it's over. It seems like we're always looking five years into the future what the <laughs> pharmaceutical industry is going to look like. And in fact, if you if you did this five years ago, who would have ever guessed that there'd be a, a, a pandemic like this that was going to, in many ways, radically alter the the face of the landscape of drug development? So I, I might just mention what I think are the significant changes that are going to be permanent as a result of the epidemic or the pandemic. Yeah. And one of them is that we're, we, for a long time, have been able to sequence genes and we've been able to edit genes. And we've known about uh, artificial intelligence and advanced analytics and machine learning. I think one thing that has come out positive in this, which may, in the pandemic, which may influence drug development going forward, is the, I would call it the practical integration of gene sequencing and editing along with machine learning and artificial intelligence into the drug development process. And mm -hmm. I think that that's something that is, we can't go back on that now. I mean, that's gonna be the new domain. But th what that also means is that traditional pharma companies are also going to become analytic companies. They're yeah. go going to have to be able to um, not just understand the science, they're going to have to be able to manage these advanced analytical techniques for sifting through large libraries of potential candidates and determining which are the most likely to succeed. I also see we've already started to move in this direction, but this collaborative approach to drug development that, that um, 
is different from the way it was two decades ago when it was one or two companies that could bring one product through to the marketplace. And now this much more integrated strategic alliance approach where from a pre-competitive pers perspective, they're trying to determine what are the uh, mechanisms of disease that can be pursued and exploited to develop new compounds in area where there's areas where there is very significant therapeutic need. Alzheimer's disease, diseases of the elderly, um, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, the immuno, uh, immunocompromising diseases, all of these areas where, where there's need, not to mention cardiovascular disease, which still remains the number one killer, as well as uh, obesity and metabolic diseases. These are all areas where companies have sort of drifted away from that because of the lack of new knowledge, as well as the in lack of opportunity um, to for on return of investment. So I think we need to get back into that and understand some of that uh, uh, reasons for companies to move into that space and provide new incentives for them to do it. Um, so I think that's some of the landscape changes that we're going to see, the collaborative approach, the integration of these analytics. And I think all of that suggests that the industry is not going to be the way it's structured currently. There has to be more of a, almost like the auto industry or any other industry where the company that makes the models, the actual chassis is not the same company that makes the engine. Yeah. Um, the same thing with pharmaceuticals, the ones that develop the general approach to the drug development and do the clinical trials is not the same one that does the analytics and some of the other aspects of drug development. So I think we're going to see um, companies with more that are more integrated with other entities that provide these services. Um, and, and I think overall, I mean, this is going to be a very different industry than what we've seen in the past. And we're already beginning to see that now with the numbers of compounds that reach the market that are coming from small to mid-sized companies, as opposed to the large multinational companies of the past. Yeah. Also, the recognition of, of the fact that this, this pandemic, as you suggested, is uh, influenced by what's going on everywhere in the world. It's not sufficient to cure the disease in the United States and Europe and not find a way to manage it in other regions of the world because one plane trip can change that overnight. So we're going to have to look at these types of threats that up that are global threats in a new way. And the industry, I think, in the past has not looked at, at those types of uh, issues in the past. So we're going to see more of that moving forward. Um, at the end of the day, I think regulatory authorities are going to have to um, uh, provide those types of incentives that we talked about earlier that will encourage companies to move in areas other than uh, not that cancer isn't important and not that genetic diseases is not important, but there needs to be a uh, incentives put in, put in place so that companies find it uh, worthwhile to invest in finding new treatments for um, diseases where there's, there's significant medical need, including cardiovascular disease, obesity, metabolic diseases, um, and neurodegenerative diseases. So all of these things are areas that uh, I think the government plays in a critical role in applying these push-pull mechanisms. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, the, the farm R&D process uh, was very much focused on sort of external threats to the to the human body. And it seems like, you know, we have done a pretty good job there. 
Uh, but all of the things that you mentioned, um, age-related diseases are all autoimmune diseases, and uh, many of them we haven't made a lot of progress yet. And no. and that goes to um, you know your your thinking of we need more investments going into basic research. We have to probably find different ways of solving this problem uh, because we haven't solved them. And it continues to be an issue, and it's it's exponentially increasing, like type 2 diabetes, uh, for example. Uh, even simple things like hypertension type 2 diabetes, probably responsible for one-third to one-half of the cost of the healthcare system. Absolutely. Um, and and so you know can we can we deal with you know things like that in a much more effective fashion um, is the question. So, yeah, this has been uh, this has been great, Ken. And um, thanks for the time that you spend with me. And good luck with everything that you do. Uh, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on, Gil. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Take care.